Welcome back to The Next Brave Thing. I'm so excited to have a really good friend, mentor, boss, just a really great human that you guys are really going to love. His name is David Noronha. Hey, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So David and I are going to be talking on the power of story. And uh, David is a storyteller. He's an actor. He's a screenwriter. He's my boss because he is the reason I'm in California, basically, <laughs> because uh, we helped start this little old school university called Bethel Conservatory of the Arts. And um, But I really wanted to have you on because we have really gotten to know each other really, really well. <laughs> yeah, I was, trying to, I was trying to figure out how long we've known you. I think it's like six or seven years now. Well, it would be six years, I think, because yeah. the school's been running five years. And just so you guys know, I did an internship at a production company in mm -hmm. town. And that is where the whole full circle for me came around of being trained as an actor and then getting more into producing and learning about what it means to make content. And it was really, really exciting. And a thing that you said to me, because you're my mentor at the time and still a mentor, um, you said to me, because I had trained to be an actor, he, you said, you're not just an actor, you're a storyteller. Mm. And that was a big moment for me because it kind of blew up the boxes of who I thought I was in creativity. So, um, yeah, today we're going to be hearing from David and um, he really is a founder of the school um, and also the head of the screenwriting program. Mm. And so we're going to really unpack the power of story, but tell us a little bit about yourself just in a few words. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I trained to be a, an actor at Carnegie Mellon, uh, went to New York, uh, did off-Broadway, Broadway stuff. And as actors do, and I think as storytellers and artists do, I think we just start to learn how to make things and do things in our off time, also known as unemployment, which I had plenty of. And I <laughs> learned how to edit and got fascinated with screenwriting and all aspects of, of storytelling. I think I think that's probably my itch. If, if anything is going to be on my epitaph, it, it'll have something to do with story, I'm sure. I love it. I love it. And you have a beautiful wife, Lisa, and she is a fiery, she beautiful, she's a dear, dear friend of mine yeah. and a beautiful dancer. So mm -hmm. she's worked professionally as a dancer. So you guys... Yeah, the storyteller duo. Um, and then you had how many children? Four. Now I've got three teenage boys and, and a five-year-old daughter. I joked that we're like Abraham and Sarah. I thought we were done. And then eight years, <laughs> one oops, and I got my baby girl. So I love it so much. It's so good. And she's very beautiful. So, um, so we're going to be talking into story. And just um, you mentioned you're an actor. And to all the Suits fans out there, <laughs> David went to college. I did with Mr. G Gabriel Mock. You did, <laughs> Mr. Suits himself. Mr. Stud himself. I was jealous yes. of him as an 18-year-old, and I'm still jealous <laughs> now. He's just a handsome bastard. Yeah, he is. And also, oh, he's a great guy. Great yeah, guy. and some fun things. I, I grew up um, being discipled by One Tree Hill, the TV show. <laughs> so There's some deep spiritual truth. <laughs> deep spiritual 
Yeah, and so you were also on One Tree Hill I did. with I Chad Michael Murray. I did, I did. Well, you know, and he and I worked together on another show called Lipstick Jungle, which I wouldn't take any discipleship from. But um, but yeah, we worked on that, and he was like the young stud muffin on that. And then I got hired to come on and be his counselor in, in the last season of One Tree Hill. I didn't know anything about the show, but to this date, if, if somebody like in their mid-20s comes up to me with that kind of look in their face, yeah, um, I, I know it's probably about One Tree Hill. So. Yeah, probably. And you've also been on The Mentalist. Yeah. I have, yeah. Yep. Good, good looking little Aussie dude on that, huh? Yeah, really. <laughs> Simon Baker. <laughs> yeah, I have, my brothers will send me, they'll be just watching The Mentalist and then I'll get little screenshots. Is uh-huh. this your boss? Yeah. Oh. <laughs> I took a bunch of my buddies down there to see the show. And at one point, the editor, Ryan Braun, who's just the sweetest guy in the world, Simon walked over to just say hi. He was being really gracious to the team yeah. that I took down. I was finishing up the show with him. And you know you're good looking when you make a straight man blush. That, right. That's how you know. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Yeah. You've also worked with, um, uh, Don- is it Donald Sutherland? Uh, Kiefer, his Kiefer. son. Yeah. Oh, that, that's right. Donald is his father. Yeah, yeah. His Kiefer. Father, yeah. Yes. And what was that show called? Designated Survivor. That's right. It's yeah. a Netflix it, one. It, yeah, it ended yeah. there. It ended oh, there. I okay. wouldn't recommend the last season, but the first the first couple ones were, yeah, were yeah. good. Yeah. It's so fun. And then also, this is a favorite. You worked with John Krasinski. I did. On the second season of Jack, Jack Ryan. Ryan. I yeah. Know. And I, I can't I can't say too much about what I do during that particular season. I don't want to spoil it, but yeah. suffice it to say that people will walk up to me this yeah. look of betrayal in their eyes sometimes. I think they forget I'm an act- just acting. You know, when people kind of secretly fan girl or fanboy you to me, mm. like you work with David Naronia, I... Um, <laughs> I like that they have to whisper it. Yeah, like it's a hushed tone for sure. <laughs> um, but basically, um, I I just like, yeah, all these characters, these plays look look what I have to deal with, you know, <laughs> like this lawyer or this counselor. Mm-hmm. counselor. You get all of them. You I get, get all, all the of flavors. them. <laughs> you get the entire I Baskin Robbins. Yeah. 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 I do. I do. But a little fun fact about you is there is a vacancy between your first and last name. You have no middle name. I have no middle name. My mother didn't believe in it. Our first three children don't, but I conceded. Oh. Yeah, I conceded okay. uh, with my daughter. Her, her middle name is Grace. Well. Yeah. That's beautiful. Yeah, it is. It, it is. is beautiful. And she deserves a middle name. She does. She earned it. She earned <laughs> she it. She did. She did. And and if I was to say that if you had a superpower, I would say it and this isn't funny, I guess. <laughs> I know you're <laughs> laughing, but I would say your superpowers are both productivity and communication. Okay. I'll you're take like it. one of the most dynamic communicators I've witnessed. Oh, thank you. And then also you are like not even human. The way you get stuff done. I tell your screenwriters, because I um, work with your screenwriters a bit, and I'm like, he had, does have a very abnormal amount of space, energy, energy for the product. This is why I don't drink coffee anymore. Yes. Yeah, yes. I backed off to tea because I figured it, was, it, was, it wasn't humane for me and the right. people around me. Yeah. So yeah, I thought I'd downshift. Yeah, so I want, the reason why we're talking about story is because we are neurobiologically wired for story. And even if you, we finished this episode and I said to you, David, like, that was so fun. And you're like, "Mm mm-hmm. I would go, my brain would go into a story of like, did he not like that? Yeah. I would go into a story. I would spiral because Mm -hmm. I make up a story by that experience. And so 
inside of bravery, because the podcast is called The Next Brave Thing, yeah. we do make up stories about our experiences All the time. that hold us back from being brave. Mm-hmm. So I would love to know, and we're really diving into the power of story and the structure of story. Um, so the question I have for you is what makes a good story, in your opinion? Gosh, there's, I, I could spend, it. story for me is a subject that's, that's never-ending deep well. Ugh, and and yes. I think it's because to, to think about story is really to try to understand humanity because yes, I heard a speaker once say, you know, I asked him, a very well-respected guy named Erwin, Erwin McManus, and I said, why do you watch movies? And he says, just to be reminded of what it means to be human. Mm. And I thought, gosh, that was such an elegant you know, simple, simple answer. I think for me, what makes a good story, and I think if you study like story theory and story models, and we have all these different pictures and shapes and paradigms for what story is supposed to be and why it works and when it doesn't work. Yeah. But I think something that I think speaks to the human being in me is that it's about someone who wants something. Mm. And I just recently read by a guy named Truby this idea that without desire, we disappear from the page. What? Yeah, That's we're insane. we're invisible. Like wow. we cease to exist unless we need or we we want something. And and yeah. listen, there's great versions of that. Yeah. And there's not healthy versions of that. But nonetheless, I think I think to desire is to be human and I think we go to story to see what somebody who wants something um how they get it. Mm. And what they'll allow themselves to do, not do, and will they get it? And I think yeah. that's one of the deepest questions that I think we ask every day is, what am I made to get? Yeah. And will I, you know? And it's so vulnerable. It is. Which takes risk. It does. So I think, how would um, risk be an important, I'm going to say device in story? I think it's essential. Yeah. You don't have a story without risk. I mean, I think at the heart of every well-told story, you have a protagonist or a hero or, or someone or something. I mean, sometimes the someone is a fish, like a clownfish, like mm-hmm. Marlon, you know? Mm-hmm. But I think at the heart of it is someone who wants something and they actually have to risk it all. And I think risk can look like different things. I mean, if we're in like the Marvel MCU universe or something like that, then typically the risk is literally life and death. Mm. But I think there's a whole range of story, and I think it's probably truer to life that we realize that in order to get the thing that we want, we actually have to risk something that matters to us, even if it's just comfort yeah, or the familiar, mm. the thing that we currently have in our hand versus the thing that we're reaching out to. We have to let go of something in order to get the next thing, mm. usually. Mm-hmm. And I think um, without risk, you don't actually have a compelling story. Yes. Oh my gosh, that's so good. What makes a bad story? I call it the the land of the land where people want for nothing and lack for nothing. This is the problem with a lot of faith based storytelling: is that nothing really goes wrong. No one ever really does anything really, really bad, which is a total lie and you know total right. hypocrisy. Yeah. But we tell stories where where someone doesn't actually risk it all to go get it. They sit, nothing really changes. That's the other essential thing I think of story is we actually go, I think movie theaters are like the chapel of hope and, and change. Yes. We want to believe by watching someone who does go through this transformative moment mm-hmm. that we can change too. Yes. So powerful. So speaking of change, I, I think that our stories can either 
either cause us because it's like our story is happening to us Mm. and then I love the word dissolve because you know we can want to hide like when it Mm. painfully turns out or whatever and um, it really takes a lot of courage and bravery to get back in the driver's seat and be the leading man leading woman in your own story because it's safer like you mentioned like comfort zone to stay in the background Mm -hmm. So I would love to go into talking about your story mm. and um, yeah, because to me, you really are, I'm getting people on the podcast who really carry and embody, embody bravery. Mm. And so I want to use moments in your story to really unpack what that's looked like. And we're going to start by talking about let's say the inciting incidents. Can you tell the audience what an inciting inci- incident would be? Yeah. I, or the, what that is. Yeah, we call it the kickstart. Um, you can also call it the, you know, the inciting means that it incites, it creates or it causes the domino effect of story, this cascade effect in, in your life. I think a good inciting incident has to come early because we don't want to wait around. The audience is yes. impatient. Yeah. The days are ticking. We are getting older. So if you haven't had one yet, you, you may want to light something on fire. They should, <laughs> yeah. they should be exciting. But more than anything, mm. they their job description, I tell my writers, these different moments in story actually have a function. They have a mm-hmm. job description to do. And part of the inciting incidents job description, if you, if you will, is to kickstart your story. Yeah. Well, I want to kind of start maybe... And this is not the very start of your life, but when was the first moment? I, I kind of know a lot of your stories, yeah. <laughs> but um, when would be the first moment that you were like, oh, I got this, this, I'm a storyteller or I'm an actor. When was that first ping, if you will? It was high school. I, I you know, my English teacher, t- you know, said, hey, we're auditioning for this musical. It was called The Fantastics. And I, I've told the story a lot, but I remember auditioning. I had... No business being on stage. I, I, I would like memorize biology facts. I was going to go to med school. The only reason I was doing drama was to round out my resume so mm-hmm. I could get into a, a good medical school mm-hmm. to be a good Cuban kid, good, responsible, <laughs> pragmatic Cuban kid, make my grandfather proud. But I remember standing on stage and I had memorized the monologue and um, there, I only remember the first two lines of it and it starts with, there's this girl, hmm. there's this girl. And I launched into the monologue and I had practiced it, I think probably like, you know, everybody does, you know, with like the hairbrush in, in, you know, in front of the mirror in the bathroom or something. (laughs) And all I remember is I got a few lines in and I leapt off the stage, knelt at my high school English teacher's feet and finished the monologue. Her jaw dropped. Mm. Mine did as well. I got up. It was like something out of like high school musical or, you know, fame or something. I remember running down the hallway going, (laughs) and, um, I, I only understood that moment later and we can go there later, but it was the first moment that I felt this this thing, inspiration or this this power, mm-hmm. this energy kind of overcome me mm-hmm. to make me bold and brave for that moment. It, it wasn't bravery that I, I had ever experienced before. And it literally opened the door to my destiny. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I love that. And tell us about your, because I think that that first moment is like a, a sign, Mm -hmm. like it's an indicator of something of destiny. Mm -hmm. So I think that's really powerful. Tell me about your first experience on Broadway. (laughs) Yeah. So very different than my high school experience in, in drama. I, um, 
I went to Carnegie, studied for four years, and I had the good fortune of starting to work in my senior year. So I'd gone to D.C. and worked at uh, the Lincoln Theater, um, the Ford Theater, where Lincoln actually got shot. And I did Christmas Carol there. And then I auditioned for this other off-Broadway show and was an understudy for a little bit. Learned my first New York lesson. I the show closed the day that it opened. And so that that's always awesome. I was unemployed a week after being, you know, a few weeks after being employed. And then I auditioned for this thing by Terrence McNally, um, this this play about this group of gay men who spend these series of like Memorial Day and Labor Day and Fourth of July, and it's about friendship and love and a sense of family. And Terrence McNally, uh, he he just passed away actually mm-hmm. um, just a little while ago, like about a year ago. But he wrote this play called Love, Valor, Compassion, and I was the understudy in it. And I understudied a, an actor named uh, Randy Becker, who, when we were off-Broadway, because oftentimes shows will start off-Broadway and then move to Broadway, the show was off-Broadway when he discovered that he, he actually had epilepsy. He didn't, he didn't know it. He had started to have these petite moles and these uh, little seizures, so they got him on medication, but they were still balancing it out. Well, the show did so well off-Broadway, they transferred on Broadway, and I was an understudy. So my job was basically to be like in, you know, in the dugout waiting to be called if something happened to Randy and then also Kirk, who played this other character. So I covered the two 20-something guys in it, and then I had, there were two other understudies. Nathan Lane was in it. You would oh, know him amazing. as, yeah, yeah, the meerkat and, you know, and a bunch of other uh, really famous Broadway actors. So... One day I was up in the loge and it was my job to watch the show at least a couple times a week because I literally had to have two characters ready to go, memorized and and ready all the time. Mm. So you'd watch it. Well, we had just transferred from off-Broadway to Broadway. And so we actually, they hadn't scheduled an understudy rehearsal yet on the new stage. Mm. Way bigger stage. It was the Walter Kerr on Broadway theater. And uh, I'm up in the, in the loge and at the end of act one, Randy's character stands up at the end of this table. He's this feisty Puerto Rican dancer and he tells the other guys off, especially this really rude guy off. And then all of a sudden Randy stops speaking. He turns around, walks off stage and we hear yelling and, and noise. Somebody turns to me, the understudy turns to me and he says, you're going on. So I run downstairs to the stairwell and there's Randy actually having an full-on grand mall epileptic seizure. He's shaking. They literally say, and this is an old theater joke, is there a doctor in the house? Three doctors come in. (laughs) He gets put in an ambulance, and the stage manager turns to me and says, go get in costume. Now, I'm 21 years old. I just graduated from Carnegie, and the next thing I know, I'm going on stage with John Glover, Nathan Lane, everything else. The thing is, is I finished act one. We have a short intermission. My next wardrobe change is to be standing off stage in a robe underneath which I have absolutely nothing because I'm about <laughs> to make my Broadway debut buck wow. naked. Oh my God. How old were you? I was 21. Yeah. I was 21. Wow. And I, and I often say it was a, it was a cold, cold day on Broadway. <laughs> <laughs> That's really brave and vulnerable <laughs> of you. Very brave. Very brave. Wow. I, I literally hop off this raft. I didn't have to go douse myself in water because I'm supposedly like have swum through a lake. I come on stage with a towel, jean ripped jean shorts because it was it was the mid '90s, so ripped jean shorts were in construction yeah. worker boots and a white uh-huh. tank top, and I get dressed. You know, I'm fully naked. I get dressed in front of the audience, ten feet away, front rows, wow. ten feet away. It was a, it was a definitely an act in humility and. Yeah. Um, I would love to know your self-talk. Oh, you know, I don't think it's appropriate. 
<laughs> Let's just say it wasn't very positive or encouraging. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's so funny. So I think, um, you know, I won't go into your love story. Sure. But uh, with Lisa, your yeah. beautiful wife. Um, and it's so fun, guys, when David does this, tell the story to the students or whoever is around. It is like everyone is captivated because it's such a fiery, passionate love story and meeting. And um, so tell me about Lisa. Like how would that be an inciting incident in your life? I mean, you know, I, th- I think for me it's like I, I had been in several relationships before Lise, but I don't think I'd ever met a woman that I felt could both like love me and champion me, but also put me in my place, which I needed desperately to be put in my place. Yeah. And she, because she's such a force of nature and still to this day, we have a feisty, fiery relationship. Um, I think I just needed, I think I, I think some part of me knew, first of all, she's stunning and gorgeous. So the first time I saw her, I wowzers. And dancer, think like, (laughs) Brown and beautiful. Just beautiful. <laughs> yeah. The first time I saw her dance, I was shook. Yeah. I was like, she is a star. Like she has yeah. the it factor. She's she's, she's a, a show stopper. She's guys. a she's a performer. Yeah. yeah. And I saw her the first time. She completely, you know, threw me for a loop. And, you know, it was a bumpy start. She was fiery. I was fiery. I was a total train wreck and making messes. And she knew better to stay away from me for about a year. But she came back and, and, and she, she asked me out. And once that happened, I kind of couldn't, I couldn't turn back. I knew, you know, she and I both come from divorce backgrounds and stuff. And so we, we just mm-hmm. both have fighter in us. Yes, when we were set against each other in the early days, it was super rough. Like, yeah. you know, the wrestling matches were not pretty. Street fight. Oh, it was total street fight. Emotional, mm-hmm. psychological street fight. But as we went on our growing journey and we we realized that instead of turning the fight at each other, yeah, it was kind of like, and I'm not saying this is necessarily like a perfectly healthy statement, but us against the world, so to speak. Totally. Versus us against Bonnie each other. Yeah, you know what I'm saying? You know, ride or dies. I, I heard two mentors of mine said to me that the secret for their marriage and we still see them as as we you know we always joke I want to grow up and be like you mm-hmm. know Tim and Dolly Ray mm-hmm. this older couple they've got four kids we've got four kids and so we really look to them to be like how'd you guys do it yeah and he said we realized we were on the same team yes and as soon good. as I realized that mm. it just kind of changed mostly everything I'm still yeah. working on a few things, but mostly everything. Yeah, that's so powerful. And I, because um, just so everyone knows, uh, Lisa and David, along with Claire and Fabiano, th- they're a husband and wife. And then you guys are husband and wife. So you're not only uh, raising kids together, but you built a school together. So that's a lot. And we share an office together. You do share an office. Yeah. yeah. And um, so I obviously... And, you know, worked closely with you guys for years. And I think the thing that I come back to is, wow, they really fought for what they have. I have so much respect for you guys. And I can feel um, when people fight, and I love that you say you're on the same team. When you fight for what you have, I just think that that makes a beautiful story. And I love that you've changed the narrative Mm. in your own family line where you've both come from divorced homes, right? And so you've literally changed the narrative for your children to experience something different. And your kids are incredible. Like, Oh, thank you. 
Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, when you come from divorce and uh, my, my parents were 15, uh, Lisa's dad left, um, you know, when she was super young, two or mm-hmm. three, it definitely, it definitely train wrecks a, a certain part of you that you don't really fully appreciate. So it's, it's, yeah. it's been a journey of healing and making mistakes and hurting each other and hurting people from those places that are mm. invisible to you. And it isn't really until you're called into deep relationship, working closely with people leading. Yeah. <laughs> leading is a place of, you know, it's, yeah, it's new. You're nude all day long. You're walking yes. around naked and people will see your flaws and they will let you yeah. know it. But I think if you embrace it, if you embrace the positive side of that, um, I think it sculpts you hopefully into a better, a better human, you know? Yeah, for sure. I love that. Um, speaking of, you know, things that you've fought for and hard times, <laughs> um, I would love, you were the original Frankie Valley, right? Off before it went to Broadway, yeah, yes. yeah, I originated the role off off Broadway, yeah, yeah, and I've heard you share this story a lot of times, mm. but it always impacts me of like a marking moment in mm. your life. Um, tell us the story about, yeah, where you were at at that time, emotionally, physically, <laughs> like, yeah, tell us about the story about uh, Jersey Boys. Yeah, I was living in L.A. with my wife, and at the time, uh, just uh, one baby boy, Zion, my eldest, who's now 18, was like Crazy. just a few months old. And I'd done a lot of television. That was kind of my bread and butter. I'd done a lot, a lot of TV shows, but I was I was really getting burnt out from the types of characters. You know, TV characters tend to be a little bit two-dimensional. and yeah. You know, my job was just to be a pinch hitter, to come in, do the guest star thing, sometimes series regular, but mainly just like as a, as a player coming in and doing stuff. And I was just getting burnt out as an artist. I was starting to fall out of love with one of my first loves. My first love is actually singing. My second love is, is acting. I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. Oh, and I know many things. There you go. <laughs> Learn something new. True confessions on yes. Ella's podcast. Yes. Um, so I, I said to my manager, Howard, I said, hey, man, I'm kind of burnt out. I need to get back to to do some stage work. Like I just have to remember why I started doing this thing. And so lo and behold, this was when all the jukebox musicals, you know, like the, you know, the Beatles and the beach boys and you know, all of these uh, musicals based on pop singers and pop songs were coming around. And so he says, Hey, uh, you know, going down to Debbie Reynolds studio, blah, 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 Wednesday, five o'clock. Um, you're auditioning for the lead role in this musical called Jersey boys. Now, now Jersey boys is like a billion dollar franchise, but back then it was just one of like six of these pop song musicals everybody was trying to crank them out because they thought it was going to be the next big hit so i go down to debbie reynolds studios this dinky little studio Mm -hmm. i think in hollywood and um i go in and i audition and i do like a lion sleeps tonight the high falsetto song that the meerkat sings in lion Mm -hmm. king and you know it's this famous doo-wop song and i love doo-wop music my dad was you know a young a, a young boy when he came to the united states and so frankie valley and the four seasons the song Sherry is literally the first song that my Cuban dad heard at five, four or five years old when he got off the plane from Cuba. And now here I am auditioning to play that guy. If you want another crazy confession, wow. I lost my virginity on a cruise ship <laughs> as a teenage boy. And I lost my virginity to a girl named Sherry. And uh-huh. somewhere on a mini cassette recorder... I'm singing the song Sherry That's so cute. the night that I lost. <laughs> yeah, maybe it's cute. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Sherry. So it was this really odd thing where it's like my dad gets off of this plane from Cuba. Here's Sherry. This moment, this, you know, rite of passage moment for a young man. Sherry. 
Well, on the callback, I get called back for it. And now I have to sing, um, well, gosh, I can't remember. I think Big Girls Don't Cry or, no, I think it was Sherry. I go to the bathroom and who comes out of the bathroom but Frankie Valley? Wow. And I'm looking at this legend of a man. So I go in and I get this job. Now, I go in and what I don't know is I'm going to have to sing like 26 songs a night, eight shows a week, six days a week. Now, I've been working in, t- in TV. So, I mean, I was singing all the time, but more for pleasure. It wasn't like I was taking vocal lessons. So I start rehearsing this thing, and really, really quickly, I realize, oh, wow, I think I might be in over my head just a little bit. But I knew that this thing was a rocket ship. I could just feel it. The music is just like, if you're of that generation, it's, it's just, it's a hit all, all over it. What I wasn't telling everybody was that I was quickly sinking into massive anxiety, depression. Mm -hmm. Um, I was addicted to pornography. I got addicted to uh, sleeping pills. Um, My wife, who we had just had this baby boy, I couldn't talk to him outside the show because of vocal fatigue. Yeah. And so the advice I was getting was don't talk unless you're doing the show. Mm. I'm also taking prednisone, which is a steroid to shrink my cords. Every other week, they're, they're putting a camera down my nostril to scope my cords to make sure I don't have nodes, these little calluses mm-hmm. on the cord, cords. So I sink into this massive depression. I'm on stage, and I've got people doing a standing ova- ovation every single night because the thing is so well-constructed. And I'd never been in a darker place. Mm. Like, I'd never been in a more self-hating, lonely, dark place. Um, what ends up happening is, is they offer me Broadway, and I just decide to stick it to them. I basically get my my representation, my agent and manager to, you know, say that they'd pay me $60,000 just to hold me for like six months between the time that we wrap and the time that we open on Broadway. Mm-hmm. But the one thing that they wouldn't concede on is they wouldn't give me matinees off. Now, when you do matinees, it means you do five shows back to back, a Friday, a Saturday, lot. Saturday, Sunday, Sunday. Yeah. And when you're singing that much, mm-hmm. your chords are just getting shredded. They said no to that, and because they said that, I wake up one one night at 3 a.m. in a complete panic attack, and I say to Lisa, I said, I can't do it. She says, what can't you do? I said, I can't do the show. She said, babe, this is, this is a role of a lifetime. I thought this is what you've always been waiting for. I said, yeah. I said, but October is like six months away, and I already can't sleep. Like, I literally can't handle the anxiety I'm feeling right now. Wow. So I say no. Suffice it to say, all hell and heaven broke loose. I had one of the Four Seasons calling me, the director, the choreographer, the producer, my agent manager were furious at me. Everybody was just absolutely livid. And I turned it down. And um, Can I just like yeah, jump in? Please. Was that scary to say no? It was one of the scariest things I'd ever done in my life. I, th- I thought it was the, the death of my career. Why was it? Why was it? So you th- that's very high stakes. Super high stakes. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So you just physically couldn't. Is that where you were at? Uh, Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I had already started to do some some damage to my cords for sure. I would only discover later um, the extent of it. But I just couldn't handle it emotionally anymore. I feel like I just want to jump in and say like a lot of people, they reach this point where they have to give up something. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned the narrative that was making it high stakes, was Mm -hmm. my career is over. It was worse. You're right. Not only did I think it was the end of my career, I actually thought in some way it was the end of me. Okay. So what would you say to yourself 
you, David, today, Hmm. if you saw that a man in that headspace, what would you say to him? This isn't what you think it is. Hmm. It, it's going to feel like death. In story, they call it the supreme ordeal. It's the false death in the middle of the story. Wow. It's um, it's the, it's Luke in the trash compactor where you know he's pushed underwater. He's drowning, and we're not sure. And it's supposed to, he's supposed to be underwater long enough, yeah, that you think he's not going to get back up and to mm-hmm. breathe again. And so I would say it's not this moment. It will feel like death because it's the death of your false self. Yes. And when you identify and believe wow. that you are the false version of yes. who you actually are, yes. then when it dies, it feels like death. Yes, it does. In short, I'd say you're going to be okay. Yeah. Great. Well, the commercial break is over and we're going to jump back into the story. So, okay, you're at your, the all hell breaks loose. Yeah. You say no. Mm-hmm. Then what happens? I get a TV show, and that's why it was the false one, because suddenly I'm flush with cash. I think I'm hot stuff. And uh, <laughs> these, uh, my audience has just listened to shame free creativity last week on the podcast, and these shame highs, shame lows are really showing up. <laughs> oh, now you're on a high. Place. Oh, I'm okay. a total high because my bank account mm-hmm. is high. I'm on a TV show, so I can basically flip off everybody who thought that I'd made the bad decision because I'm now officially, because I know what they were going to offer the other guy because I knew that what they were going to offer me. So because I'm making more money, I made the better choice. What happens <laughs> is um, the show tanks. Mm. The other guy goes, John Lloyd Young wins the Tony. Oh. And I have to watch the Macy's Day Parade with my brother-in-law who literally said to me, and we're friends, but he literally said to me, I don't know how you live with yourself. Like, I don't know. Wow. <laughs> no, I know. Yeah. <laughs> I, go to, I go to my brother-in-law to have a bourbon, but not a word of encouragement. But yeah. <laughs> anyways, he, and I, I said, well, what am I going to do? Roll over and die, man? I've, I've got to keep, I've got to keep going. Hmm. The crazy part is I get another TV show. My sense of self swings back up. I feel like I'm on top and I have enough courage at this point because now I'm in New York. So now I have enough courage because I have enough cash. I have enough courage to reach out (laughs) to the three guys that also were with me in Jersey Boys. Mm -hmm. So we have lunch for the first time. I haven't talked to these guys since I said no to the show. These are guys that I ran with for four months straight. We were all supposed to go to Broadway together. Like we Mm. did this thing together. Oh, I remember those guys and they visited Reading. I remember Absolutely. Yeah, they visited Reading. And so we sat there and we had lunch. And then one of the guys, Christian, one of my good buddies, uh, who won the Tony for the best supporting in Jersey Boys, he says to me, hey, man, so listen, it, I, I don't know if you're up for this, but we saved an orchestra seat for you, like, you know, best seat in the house, and you want to come see the show? I said, guys, I love you so much. I just don't think I can handle it. Mm-hmm. An hour later, I'm in my hotel room, and I kind of feel this prompt, you know, in my heart that I need to go see this thing, that, like, by actually going to see it, there's going to be some tremendous healing in it for me. Wow. So I go. But now... In a complete reckoning of of ego, I now am standing by the sound booth because they gave my seat away. So now I don't even have a seat. So I'm standing room only watching the guy who won the Tony and who Mm. replaced me effectively. And I knew in that moment I was the only other human being that knew what it felt on the inside, like vocal cords, your muscles, your body, what it felt to move like that, sing like that, what it felt to hit these crazy high doo-wop notes. 
And so afterwards, I got invited to come, kind of come back. They said, you know, I got a text from Christian. He said, hey, man, there's a lot of people back here who would like to say, so I had to take a deep breath, shoot up a prayer, because I was like, this is going wow. to be a reckoning moment for me. And I'll, I'll, I'll never forget when John came down the steps. It's the one and only time we've, we've gotten to speak to each other. He's the guy who won the Tony for the role that I was supposed to go to Broadway with. And I said to him, man, you deserve every single accolade, every single award you've won. I know, I know what it is to do what you're doing, and um, you deserve the Tony. And meanwhile, everybody was looking, looking at the two of us. We were like the two Marty McFlys, you know, staring yeah. at each other across time. Anyways, I went back to my hotel room. I buckled down on my knees and I cried. But it was probably the beginning of my healing from that, from that whole traumatic experience. Wow. So coming into another inciting incident, it's really powerful. It sounds like you, it was, would you say that was a rock bottom for you? At that time, you kind of mentioned coming out of a rock bottom. But no, what... it got worse. Okay, tell me about that. <laughs> I'll give you the short version of it. I, you know, when the second show gets canceled and the money evaporates, and that's who you think you are, and your sense of self worth and value, and yeah. all of that stuff, significance is wrapped up in whatever your thing is. And for different people, it's different things, right? I mean, for some people, it's this person loves me. For another person, it's, it's their job or their, their, mm-hmm. you know, their title or their cash, whatever that thing is that isn't really the thing where we should put our value in. So when the second show got canceled and the money runs out, I ended up in a community college thinking in my own insanity and, and really kind of ironic that I would help other crazy people by becoming a psychologist. Oh, I so, got this part of the yeah. story. <laughs> so I ended up in a community college and that, that was my rock bottom. When I thought I was going to have to walk away from acting when the money wasn't coming through, when I wasn't booking jobs, when I'm sitting at this dinky community college taking, you know, these, these, you know, I was taking like a Spanish lit class and psychology classes. And I mean, I love school. So there was like pleasure in it. I mean, I love yeah. to learn. But where it got worse was that literally in the span of that year after the second show got canceled, in that year, my wife and I lost four people near and dear to us, like four people passed away. And I think that's when you lose people and you don't have answers for what you're feeling and how you're looking at life and where meaning lies, Mm. um, that's when I hit my rock bottom. Yeah. I... In when I help people life coaching and all of that, um, we talk about usually I experience them in the act two of their life of they've experienced the inciting incident, whether that be a divorce or something really intense that kind of throws them out of their comfort zone. Mm. And in story, the hero is trying every possible comfortable version to get them back to act one right let's get back to when we were on top let's get back yep and usually there gets a point where the character chooses courage Mm -hmm. and then they go into their act three which is enlightenment Mm -hmm. tell us about what enlightenment has looked like for you i think when i saw my stepmom myra pass away at 49 which is how old i am now and just six weeks prior to my seeing her, she was holding my second-born son, Knight. Seeing my dad, who struggled with addiction, my you know my family's kind of riddled with lots of addiction, drinking and drugs, and all kinds of things. And so, 
uh, infidelity, all, all kinds of, you know, crazy stuff in my family tree yeah. talking about the narrative that Lisa and I have had to fight for in terms of like redeeming what we wanted family to look right. like, marriage to look like, parenting, our own lives, our own sanity to look like. But I think for me, enlightenment looked like when I ran out of, I ran out of answers. Yeah. Like I actually ran out of answers. I, I, I couldn't explain what had happened to me. And I knew, I knew enough that the tools that I'd been using to get where I'd gotten were no, were, weren't going to bring me into the, the next mm-hmm. realm, mm-hmm. the next kingdom. And that's the thing about when you look at story model, it is actually about growth and transformation. So when, yeah. my, when my students pitch me a story and they said, well, it's about transformation. I said, yep, every story is. Well, it's about growth. Yep, every story is. I remember, <laughs> just a side note, when I was <laughs> being mentored by you, you were like, by the end of the year, I want you to do a short film. And we, our group of interns, we wrestled around. We kept <laughs> wanting it to be about identity and we want it to be about themes of overcoming. And you're like... But what actually happens? What actually? What happens? What are the plot points? Like what actually happens in our environment now? The the the, the catchword, and it's a really important word, but is well, they're seeking significance, and I always say to them, the problem with that is I can't see it; it's yeah. invisible, and no one wants to read that story other than your mom and your grandmother. You know, I say, yeah. I always tell my screenwriters, listen, this is not journaling. Yes. Journaling is super good. Yeah. It's not storytelling. No one wants to read it but your mom. Yeah. I th- so I think for me, when I, when I finally landed on my face, I met, I met a mentor. I met this young Liverpoolian British guy who, who kind of gave me a lifeline and he invited me into a faith community. And I, it was in that moment that I started to see that there was someone and something bigger than me. Yeah. And that life, I, I, I don't think I had realized that I had kind of become like a black hole. Mm. That... I was literally imploding mm-hmm. and being, you know, almost like this star that's imploding on itself because I thought I was supposed to have all the answers. I thought life was about me mm. versus others. And I know it's weird because, I mean, I love my wife. I provided for my wife. I raised my kids. But black holes are self-consuming. Ugh, yeah. And that's what I'd become, I think, out of out of pain, out of mm-hmm. ignorance, out of, you know, lots, lots of things. I mean, I have, I have grace for that kid. You know, he, my childhood was super rough. My, I had teen parents. Yeah. My, my dad was 15. My mom was 17. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of arguing and drinking and things, but also a lot of love and passion as is often the case in Latin. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I had my grandmother who was this kind of beautiful Obi-Wan abuela. You know, she would make up stories for me and she would like re-spin. I mean, my love of story I think in part comes from my grandmother. Like when my grandmother would tell the three little pigs, yeah, no one could tell it better. <laughs> Whatever my favorite cartoon was got worked in. That's what they were sitting on the porch watching. Whatever my favorite soda was. I mean, she knew how to tailor story mm-hmm. to grab my interest, you know? Yeah. And so she was kind of like this pillar, this pillar yeah. that I kind of walked away from and kind of came back to, you know, uh, before she passed. But um, I have a lot of compassion for the kid who was lost and punching. Yeah. I call it, I call it fighting with ghosts. Yeah. You know, I'd been fighting with a lot of ghosts. Wow. And um, I think in that moment, I kind of, I began my journey of looking at the other human beings around me, mm. beginning to try to love them, mm-hmm. making them and and their, you know, their needs more of a focus for me. And I know it's ironic, but or unexpected or counterintuitive, 
But sometimes when we tend to the other people around us, it pulls us up and out of ourselves. And yes. I think in many ways, and I mean, that's the, by the way, that's, I tell my writers this, that's the definition of a hero. Actually, at the end, if you look at the Greek in that word, mm. at the heart of it is actually sacrifice. Yeah. Every hero at some point sacrifices themselves for those around them. Mm-hmm. And because of that, mm-hmm. they elevate to this, to this other space, to this other realm. Wow, so beautiful. Wow, speaking of sacrifice, <laughs> um, let's go into the final inciting incident that yeah. we'll talk about today, and that's starting BCA. <laughs> well, that's a walk in the park. <laughs> oh, so easy. <laughs> but it, I think I love what you're saying there because it, for both of us, it's really been more about service. Yeah. Um, then I think that sometimes there's this idea when you're not, in a leadership position that that looks shiny and impressive. I think you can attest to this. That <laughs> you don't even think about that most of the time because you're, you know, just figuring out how to do it. You know, yeah, like right. there's, a, I mean, yeah. But tell me, like, because that's taken a lot of courage. Um, what, yeah, what are your takeaways from building a school now that it's five years in? Yeah, I think for me it's based on this word legacy, this word that kind of, leapt up in my spirit, um, you know, when I moved to Reading and left LA and needed to kind of find like a new well, like a new, mm-hmm. a new chapter. It was yeah. time for me to enter a new chapter in my story. I think I, you know, if I were to encourage anybody about anything is I think protagonists, healthy heroes are always moving forward. Yes. You know, stories are directional. It doesn't mean that we leave behind the people that, you know, we've made relationship with. Mm-hmm. I mean, sometimes it is if it's not healthy, but you know, I'm not, I'm certainly not encouraging anybody to walk away from their wife or their kids. I mean, you have a tribe that you walk with, family you take with you, ghosts you can, you know, bury and and leave behind. But I think for me, it was knowing that it was time to move forward. Yeah. That if I stayed, I would die. Yeah. And that's true of every, every hero. If the hero, you know, the only rule in story is don't stay still. Stasis equals death. Mm. You know, we're made to breathe. We're made to move. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a teacher and instructor here who is saying that human beings are actually, they have to move. This is why little kids can hardly sit still. You know, we kind of beat them into submission, but we're actually mm. these kinesthetic creatures that are made to keep moving and making yeah. and, and moving forward. For me, BCA is about giving away. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's been this beautiful blessing, this kind of yeah. unexpected return. My one, Some of my favorite moments is when I leave a classroom and I'm walking to my next class and my students are like 10 feet in front of me and they don't know that I'm standing behind them and they're they're talking passionately about something that we just discussed and yes. I see them in conversation. Yes. I have these moments that are kind of transcendent for me. I've had some pretty cool moments in life. I mean, I've I've stood center stage, I've gotten, you know, applause and these things. And those things are beautiful. Mm-hmm. But man, there's this there's this beauty in hearing your passion, your love for something ignite in another human soul. Oh my gosh, yes. That's probably that, my favorite thing about yeah. BCA too. Yeah. yeah. Well, I I just get excited that like we get to have these conversations. We get to wrestle through these tensions. Yeah, your job is you get to come to work and talk about your favorite things. Like, are you kidding yeah, me? Yeah, yeah. And then other people get excited about it? Yeah. It's awesome. It's, yeah, I love that picture. That's so beautiful. 
So I have some fun little silly questions <laughs> from if it, all the actors who listen, you you probably at some point watched James Lipton's totally. interviews on the and act. Will Ferrell. Will Ferrell's parody as yeah, well. Yeah, probably. Is- yeah. And um, yeah, he James Lipton interviews famous actors like Russell Crowe and Kate Blanchett. I'm just listing the Aussies. <laughs> I'm yeah, like, yeah. and Bradley Cooper. I don't know. And it's to college students. I think it's at Pace University. Yeah. And it's, yes, yes. Mm-hmm. The actor studio. Yeah. Yeah. The actor studio. Anyway, so um, I'm going to list through some questions. Okay. Rapid fire. Yeah. So what's your favorite word? My favorite word would probably have to be story. Uh huh. Yeah. What's your least favorite word? Skit. I joke. <laughs> I joke that it's my least favorite four-letter word in the English language. Yeah. What turns you on? My wife. No. Um. What turns me on is uh confidence. Yeah. Confidence. Mm-hmm. What turns you off? Uh complaining nagging oh yes <laughs> i'd listen to people complain all day what am i talking about um what sound or noise do you love jazz i love john coltrane's my favorite things i could live in that place right there okay so what sound or noise do you hate i, I hate the sound of people chewing food Oh, yeah. You know, with their open, yeah, the yeah. lip smacking. Yeah, that's kind of gross. <laughs> What's your favorite cuss word? <laughs> <laughs> well, as the co-founder of BCA, yes. um, it, they, you, can, you can find it resplendently in most of Mammoth, and its initials would be M and F. Oh, yes, that's good. <laughs> um, what profession, other than your own, would you like to attempt? Carpentry. Really? I love it. Oh, yeah. Okay. From the time I was a little kid, there was this this show called This Old House, and there was this guy named Norm. Norm. He's from Boston, and he's okay. a master carpenter. I just think it's the coolest thing. Yeah. What profession would you not want to do? Taxes. Yeah. Like be a tax accountant? Oh, that'd In be a cubicle, crunching numbers? No. Yeah. That I'd would die. be a disaster. So if heaven exists, which I think it does. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I believe it does. Yeah. What would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates? Hey, man. Yeah. <laughs> totally. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming uh, on my such podcast. A you. It's Love you. I just so you know, like David and I have these deep philosophical chats. Not often enough. I would not say. anymore. I know, but yeah. I miss I miss the knock at my door. Hey, you got two minutes. Two hours later, yeah, Ellen, I have solved the world. <laughs> we have solved the world. <laughs> anyway, I love you lots, love friends, you and this too. has been super fun. And thanks for listening, guys. Thank you for listening today. You can follow us at the Next Brave Thing Podcast on Instagram, and make sure you subscribe and leave a review. If you would like to book in a life consulting session with me, feel free to go to my website at www.ella-hooper.com for more information.